Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discussing Trek. Thank you for listening. What we do here on this podcast is review each and every episode of Star Trek in somewhat excessive detail, in addition to talking all things Trek. Today, we are viewing Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 2, Anomaly. Like always, I'm your host, Clarence, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts slash Trekkies. Starting with Cal Jones. How you doing, man? You know what? I have survived Thanksgiving, and I'm glad to be back. So, yes, glad to be here, as absolutely always. I think this is an awesome time of the year because... In one week, I get a new episode of Doctor Who, I get a new episode of Star Trek Discovery, and I get Marvel shows, so I can't complain. So, glad to be here. You're all dealing with anomalies and fluxes and... Uh, Archers. You know, stolen suits, yeah, you know? Yes. <laughs> so, yes, glad to be here. Good time to be streaming, I guess. Indeed. <laughs> and also on the podcast, we have Jonathan Shorts. How you doing, man? I am doing great, man. Doing great. Uh, just as everyone else ate too much for Thanksgiving and regretting it right now. Uh, I'm probably going to try to run all of those calories off in the next couple of days. But other than that, man, great trick to watch. Great trick to talk about. I'm excited to talk about this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too, man. I'm, I'm doing well. And I do feel like I ate too much. But fortunately for me, it seems like I'm in I'm doing OK. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, just, it, you're like three percent body fat. So. No, that ain't true. That's yeah, and like true. seven foot five. So right, and built like a brick wall. Yeah, I mean, it's not too much you could do wrong. And lies, you know. lies, man, lies. <laughs> you are the the perpetual goal that every healthy person shoots for. Bum bum bum. <sighs> well, maybe one day, but uh, whatever you say, whatever you say, but. Without further ado, we're going to get right into our review of Star Trek Discovery Anomaly. Anomaly is the second episode of season four of Star Trek Discovery. The episode was written by Ann Kofel Saunders and Glenice Mullins. The episode was directed by Olatande Asensame. Saru returns to help the USS Discovery uncover the mystery of the unusually destructive new force. As Burnham leads the crew, she must also find a way to help book cope with an unimaginable loss. Spoilers. Red alert. All hands stand to battle station. What gives you the right? You cannot destroy an idea. At ease before you sprain something. Like always, we go to Cal Jones for the beats of the episode. Sometimes serious, sometimes comedic. You never know. Cal Jones, what do you have for us this week, man? So I have to admit, this episode was a little hard for me to come up with a beat. So I tried to be funny, and I really had nothing to be funny about. I t tried to be kind of serious, but this is ultimately what I came up with, which is as follows. Episodes 2 often advance the ongoing story while providing opportunity for character development. And, if done correctly, reminds us that we are all imperfect whether we are nine hours from now or 900 years. Mm, all right. All right. And actually, I have a few uh, nuggets from this episode I like to offer up. Not as in-depth as yours, Cal Jones, but I just, you know, I just thought about this. The first one is emotions make you cry sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to H-Town. And this, the second is you might as well blow me out of an airlock, you know, because that happens. But Jonathan Shorts, what is your high level opinion of this episode, man? Huh. Um, I mean, I really liked it. I have no quarrels about this episode other than what my previous episode quarrel was. It just seemed like it was too short. I wanted more. Really? <laughs> I mean, not, and that's not a bad thing. That's just to say, like watching this episode, just like the previous episode, it was like I was watching a movie. And yeah. I wanted to see the conclusion, right? And it just, it wasn't there. And then they left us at the end, which we'll talk about. They left us with a gigantic WTF <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, other than that, man, it was great. Uh, kudos to the visual effects. Uh, kudos to the acting. And we get to see our favorite person back. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Good stuff. I do have to throw this in. One person became irritating a bit. I'm sure we'll get to that. I think I know who you're talking about because they were irritating to me. But let's let's see if we're talking about the same person. I'm curious because I got non irritated. So mm, really, and if Kyle yeah. didn't get irritated, something's right. off because he's something. irritated everything. I know. I mean, I like hate everything and irritate everything. So yeah, um, for me, I'm going to agree with everything that Jonathan just said. I loved it. I think this is. You know, we go back and forth with self-contained stories and continuing multi-part stories. And just as, you know, I keep referring to Doctor Who, but just as we're seeing in Doctor Who, sometimes multi-part stories of one big overlapping stories are a good thing. I think this is once again what Discovery is doing. I'm there for it. I'm enjoying it. And very cinematic, very well acted. And I can't wait to talk more. Yeah, and and it seems I know we're going to talk about the latest Doctor Who tomorrow, but it just seems like that show is pulling a lot from Discovery in some senses and it's pulling from a lot of other streaming shows. I love that they're bringing that element over there. But as far as this episode of Discovery goes, I really liked it. I'm almost afraid that we might be going too much in the emotional spectrum, which we kind of did it last year and i just don't want to do that again if that makes any sense yeah i did kind of notice that and i, I want to go kind of throw up so i've i've watched like the uh you know the flash series dc comics flash series that's on wb or something like that cw yeah anyway i like i've been watching that and i'm finishing up the last season i'm a little behind but as this show progressed they started like every three minutes there was like a really in-depth emotional moment and i get it but then it starts to a point you're like "Eh, it's kind of starting to bother me a little bit and i'm hoping that we don't go that way like every moment doesn't have to be an emotional connection yeah are you talking about the joe cry moment because every episode of flash has a joe cry (laughs) moment Hey, uh, a Joe cry moment and a Barry thinks everything is his fault moment. Bingo. Yeah, <laughs> you're spot on there. And in and, and, and this episode, I think it fits. But, you know, again, I think we had a full season of dealing with issues, emotional issues. And of course, Colbert was there to be the shoulder to cry on to get us through it. I just I kind of don't want the whole season to be that again. Now, for this episode, it makes a lot of sense because we have the Alderaan moment. Planet gets destroyed. Book has to deal with that. The lone survivor of this planet. And speaking of those emotions, let's dive a little bit into Book's reaction or should I say lack thereof to what actually happens. And I'm trying to gauge his relationship with Burnham because it seems like it's kind of um almost the opposite of what it was last season in a sense where Burnham was the one that came to the future and didn't have her people and she needed books help. But I'm, it's, I'm a little weirded out that book is so standoffish from an emotional standpoint. Granted something very bad happened. (laughs) I get it. But I was a little confused by his treatment of Michael in this episode. Mm. You know, I'm not. And some of, I think in my opinion, like his emotion that he portrayed in this episode was such great acting. Oh yeah. Like there's a moment where we, you know, when she was talking to him, the initial opening scene, he's on the ship going through the video and she's talking to him like that look in his face. Like I can't even describe what I I couldn't even, I couldn't even tell you what emotion that was. He was (laughs) having, but it was so powerful for not a word to be said. Like, I can't, it's hard to describe. I mean, you can't, you can't say like if somebody's entire planet was just destroyed, like it's not enough to just say they're grieving. It's not enough to just say that they're mad. Like we get that, but like, it's almost like you have to come up with another emotion to describe what he's going through. And that look in his face, describe that emotion without naming it. I don't know if that makes sense, but that was just great for me. Are you talking about the moment where he tells her you need I need for you to leave? Yes. Yeah, I agree with you 1 billion percent right there because I I didn't find him standoffish, but I think 
everything that you just said about the unknown emotion that he is projecting, because I think he's projecting everything that you just said, but I'm also going to add on a layer of survivor's guilt that I felt mm, like he had. Yeah. And, you know, you know, Clarence, you're going to, to the standoffish point that you mentioned. And I agree. I think he was standoffish, but I think he's going through so many roles in his head at the same time. He's talking to himself internally, perhaps of I'm this perhaps maybe one of the few survivors of my planet, my species, race, whatever you want to call it. He's that. He's one of the few survivors, if not the only survivor of his family. He's also dealing with this new role that his partner has that is now superior to him in obvious ways. But then he's also dealing with how do I relate all of these emotions to her? And sometimes maybe the absence is the best way to deal right. with it, he needed that moment. So that's, I didn't take him as being standoffish. Yeah. And, and it's just kind of like, I'm just putting myself in that moment. Like, I wouldn't have been mad with him if he had told her, like, I don't want to talk to you again. Like, mm. you, you, he has no emotional room for anything else right now. And that, that, that's, I mean, how do you square that circle? Like, I, just put yourself in that position. If if we were out in space and Earth was destroyed and you were potentially the last human being, not only your family, but your history, your species, species history, like there is no room for anything else other than to try to process that. OK, I'm going I'm, I'm going to take it one step further and I'm going to make a very, very big assumption here. But and I'm going to use you, Clarence. As, as an example with along with myself, because I've known you longer than I've known Jonathan. So no offense, Jonathan. But if I were to put myself and you, Clarence, in that position, I would be the one that would be sitting there, you know, just blah, 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 blah. But I would think you also would be the quiet person that would be introspective. And I wouldn't think that that would be standoffish. I would just think that's how that person was dealing with it at the moment. Right. Yeah. And, and, and hats off to Captain Burnham for allowing him that room to grieve. Uh, and, and like you said, you really can't explain the emotion, but uh, hats off to David Ajala for for just an excellent job acting in that moment. And and yeah, I do agree. This is just a hard moment that you really can't square. And yeah, what are you going to do when that happens? And his his I just I can't get over the look in his eyes, like not no worry about what's said or what the rest of his face looks like. Just that look in his like somehow he managed not to blink for like an entire minute. <laughs> oh, and it was like tears and anger in his I, I don't know like i i just honestly don't know another actor that could have done that okay so let me add one more layer to that that you reminded me of jonathan not only did he have the tears but he was able to somehow tear up just enough to where his eyes were wet <laughs> Yes, but not enough to release the tears. Yeah, and that made—I mean—that spoke volumes. I don't. Yeah, it's crazy. Just that one. I mean, guys, we've been talking about this for <laughs> a few minutes now, and it, there was like two lines of uh, speech in this scene. Like, it, it, just his facial expressions give us volumes to talk about. Yeah. So, so this episode was very much about dealing with emotions. Again, emotions make you cry sometimes. Saru is back to being Captain Burnham's <laughs> trusted confidant and now looking to be the first officer. So, you know, speaking of those emotions and dealing with emotions and, you know, we often have uh, Hugh Colbert playing the the counselor on the ship. But I think it's often overlooked at just how much the first officer has to serve as counselor to captain and crew in a lot of ways. and. Just thoughts on how Saru is filling that role, especially in this episode when we have Burnham, who doesn't know what to do with her love interest. And 
you know, I guess it kind of goes back to me to the last episode. Like, where does he fall along that chain of command? And he kind of bucks against it a little bit in this episode by saying, you know, you're not my commanding officer. I don't have to be here. So just uh, if anybody want to offer any any thoughts on how Saru kind of, you know, helps Burnham navigate this in this episode. Mm. Chakotay comes to mind. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, there was a couple of episodes where Janeway mentioned to Chakotay, like she was so thankful for him because like you can't show a captain can't show those moments of weakness or indecision or unsure of themselves. They can't show that to the crew. Like they can't really go to the doctor or the counselor and talk about it. Really? I mean, they can, but they don't. And who, who else can you go to about that? And like Chakotay was that for Janeway and many times he kind of bucked her a little bit, you know, but he was still loyal to a fault and he never disobeyed orders. Well, I mean, there was one or two times, but (laughs) (laughs) that's what it does. Yeah. (laughs) But for me, for the most part, like he would tell her exactly what he thought and his opinion and would blatantly tell her she's wrong, but go out and perform his duties like a good officer. And I think that helped beyond words. And that's what you see here with Saru. Like he's and not to mention, he gives that comfort. Like, you know, this is all new to Burnham. Right. It's like she's taking on a major role. She's trying her best. She knows the crew is looking toward her. You know, Federation is looking toward her to fix this. And she has a lot. And what's better than have that security blanket of Saru? Yeah. So I'm going to swing it just in a slightly different direction. I agree with everything you said, Jonathan, about other captains, specifically with Janeway and Chakotay. But for this group, I see it more, or I saw it more as, think of a group of people that go through a traumatic event. And for whatever reason, that group of people are bonded on some level. I saw this more so as there was a group of people who went from 900 years in the past to 900 years in the future. Saru is one of those people and your family for all intents and purposes. A member of the family was gone and a member of the family came back. That unit needed that person that was mm-hmm. missing. Hence, that's how I saw it. Yeah, you're right. Like there was that missing link that held the chain strong. Bingo. That, that's just my my take of it. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree with both of your thoughts as well. And we even see Saru extend that counselor type role just a bit when he talks to Tilly, who, again, up top when I was talking about this continued emotional kind of baggage that was in the previous season, it seems like Tilly is going through it in this season, first with the death of Nalas and then the the destruction of Quajon and it seems like she's kind of stuck in that same rut that uh, Detmer was in last season. Yeah. Well, real quick, just kind of throw a little, a little thing in here. He, he did seem taller. <laughs> did he? I don't know. <laughs> to me, he did. Like when she said it and I looked at him next to her, I was like, he really does seem like his legs are like extra long for some reason. It was the red that made him look slimmer. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was a good kind of lighthearted moment because I kind of thought we were going to go into a, another one of those emotional moments. And it really was just kind of a comic relief sort of deal. So I appreciated that. And, and what I what I can say about even though Tilly is expressing that she's having these issues, even in the later moment when she talks to Colbert, I love that they finish the conversation with a bit of fun. Um, you know, she made a joke like I got to go do stuff. And he's like, go ahead, do your thing. Well, you know, they made some type of joke. I can't remember what it was, mm, but they yeah. left on a very lighthearted note. Yeah, but that was uh, she irritated me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Tilly. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Let's get into it. If I were to say Mr. Saru, what would that remind you of? Oh, Mr. Spock. Yes. Yes. Such a great little nod to to Spock there. I thought that was pretty cool. So we get a bit more information on the anomaly at this roundtable meeting of Federation and non-Federation. We get that it's five light years across, roving binary black holes, creating huge gravitational waves. So 
Tilly says there are no records of anything like this happening before. But Jonathan, you seem to think otherwise. I do. And, you know, we find out later that she was kind of they were kind of wrong in their initial assumption of what this was, which kind of pushed me closer to what I believe. And I said this from the previews, what I thought maybe it was. So there was a a Voyager episode, One Small Step. Um, I went back and watched it today just so I could be sure. Uh, And I think it was season six, episode eight, I think it was. Anyway, uh, there's a anomaly called a graviton ellipse. And Mm. this is seems to be a naturally occurring anomaly, but it pops up out of subspace at random. And this has been going on since the first manned mission from Earth. Yep. And it's happened so obviously in the Alpha Quadrant and Voyager runs into it in the Delta Quadrant. So this thing has been around for a long time, but it just pops in and out of subspace at random. It's attracted to certain forms of magnetic magnetic energy. And because it's attracted to that, it changes direction where a normal anomaly usually moves in one direction and doesn't change direction unless something acts against it. Mm. So this gravitation, this graviton ellipse produces massive graviton waves that affects anything in its vicinity. It also contained within it is a gaseous, some kind of gaseous material, and it also consumes anything it goes through. So you also have asteroids and rocks and junk. So and it's making like these wave eddies that they called it, like graviton waves that comes from it. Same thing we're having here. And the biggest key to me, and I guess I don't want to jump to the end, but I mean, at the end of the show, they kind of do a pullback draw Mm -hmm. shot of this anomaly. And it's kind of has like a shape of an eye. Yep. And if you look at this graviton ellipse in Voyager, it's the same exact shape. Now, the only problem we are having is on Discovery, they're saying this thing is five light years across. Uh, and the Graviton Ellipse was not that big, but we're talking about a big, t- a lot more time in the future and it could have grown. Yeah. So that's the only thing I don't know about. Yeah, it, it definitely could have caught steam over the previous 900 years to, to grow yeah. a lot bigger than it was. But can I throw this in here? So five light years across, I had to look this up. So a light year, and this is in Trek and in real life, a light year is 5.48 something miles times 10 to the 12th power, which is a lot. All right. <laughs> the distance from Earth to Mars is 0.00000114 of a light year to give mm. you a perspective. So if this thing is five light years across, like yeah. I don't, I, it doesn't fit. <laughs> I'm that's galaxy consuming, right? Right. But I mean, they're, but they're, and I maybe, maybe they're like, if this was that big, I don't see how discovery is there and not in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get it. It, it, I'm always swirling all those numbers because when they said five light years, the first thing I instantly went to was, okay, Voyager was, I mean, yeah, Voyager was stranded in a Delta quadrant. 70,000 light years. So, you know, I'm kind of trying to play numbers in my head to try to, okay, you know, that that's pretty big, you know? <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I don't, it, it, we got that pullback at the very end of the episode, which I guess could give us some kind of clue on actually how gorgantuan this thing is. And maybe that's what the, what they're trying to convey on the size of it. Uh, yeah. That is, it's just hard to wrap around, but if it wasn't for that five light years, and I'm still saying it's the graviton ellipse. Like, I don't I can't think unless they create something totally new. So that's Star Trek Voyager. One small step. Season six, episode eight. I'm going to say this recommended viewing for anybody that's watching this season of Discovery. And hopefully if Jonathan Wright is going to it's going to be a cool little tie in there. <laughs> so we have Jeremy Barrow joining us. How you doing, man? Man, I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be back. I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Yeah, glad to have you back after your long hiatus. And hopefully that's that hiatus is no more. <laughs> cool beans. So we're going to just let you jump right in as we continue this review. So 
Discovery sets course to investigate this anomaly and get more accurate readings in order to stop it. After they apply this spectrographic filter thing so they ac can actually see the anomaly, <laughs> you know, we get a whole bunch of techno babble here, which I'm not going to try to repeat, repeat any of it. It was just like five minutes of techno babble <laughs> talking about the anomaly. But let's, and, and this is a, a huge problem I kind of have with the season. So let me say this. I am loving the tech that we're seeing in this future, but by the same token, I feel like the tech that they're introducing is going to make it hard to have classic trick episodes because the tech should subvert some of the normal scenarios that we have. For instance, to me, this is the second time in a row where we could have used these worker dots to do something, but for some odd reason, they're useless. Like, why do we even have this tech if they can't even go in this anomaly and get a reading or shoot a probe in there? We don't have probes anymore. Like, why do we have all this cool tech where we can't use it? Well, I'll defend the dots. And we, <laughs> <laughs> we, and I, I, I can't remember. I was just watching an episode of Star Trek somewhere and they had these little dots. Well, it's sort of like dots. But anyway, they're primarily used just to work on the ship. Okay, fair like enough. They're not used to do anything outside of that, which they can be in certain circumstances, but they were never intended for that use. And especially going into this anomaly that pretty much ransacked the Discovery Shields, like I wouldn't expect anything smaller to make it. But what happened to the standard probe? I mean, that's like a staple of Star Trek. Well, it's the same. It's the same thing. The probe <sighs> will not go. The probe will not work. It doesn't have the shielding and it's too small. This is what probes do. They've made a statement in the dialogue that is too light to go through the anomaly to get to get inside. And the, the dots may be the same way. They may just not have that, that heft to them to make it through without being blown away. And in the Voyager episode for the Graviton Ellipse, it was the same situation. Nothing could really get through it. They did get a probe through it, but by applying Borg shields. So seven, <laughs> seven mentioned that the Borg encountered this anomaly and they figured the best way to destroy it was to destroy it from within. So they developed shields to go into it and destroy it. Uh, so they kind of applied that to it. Now, why? You know, that's kind of another problem with this Graviton Ellipse theory, though, is, you know, you figure that was recorded 900 years ago. We would assume we have a plan for that now. Yeah. Especially yeah. with the new tech, air quotes. Yeah. Well, if it's such an anomaly, you know, it may have been forgotten in time. Like if it's, you know, the first time in 900 years this has happened, who would remember that? True. Who was there for that for the first time to, you know, it's institutional memory. And it was, well, it was said in the Voyager episode, like the last time it was seen was that first manned mission to the, to Mars or something like that. That was the last time that it had ever been recorded in Starfleet record. So I don't remember exactly how much time it passed since then. A couple of hundred years, maybe. So, hmm. so I want to go on, but I want to ask a question. Do you guys think this is naturally occurring or there is something behind it? Something behind it. Mm. Both. Both. Mm. Any guess, Jeremy? See, I'm inclined to believe that it is naturally occurring, but because it's Star Trek, <laughs> I know that there's going to be something, there's something up behind it. So I'm kind of torn as to which way to really go. Okay. So, so book wants to take his book's ship as it's labeled. I don't think it has any other name. He wants to take his ship inside the anomaly. Wow. Again, I think the problem of having the, the dynamic of Burnham being the captain and book just being this rogue element on the ship, she really has no sway over him other than the love interest part of, of their relationship. And in my opinion, it weakens her as a leader. Potentially. I'm not sure that it does, but I potentially say that it could. I agree with Kyle. Like it, as of now, it does not. And I think everybody on the ship understood her hesitation this time. And it may have been because of her love interest, or it may have been she was really just thinking of it logically. He was too distraught to actually complete this mission. Mm. We don't know where her mind and her decision, what the decision was based on. But as of right now, the crew can kind of look at it as she was making a command decision 
that he was too personally involved. But as Kyle said, I agree 100 percent. I think it can be and will be an issue moving forward. Hmm. Pivoting just a little bit. Who would have thought we'd be mentioning Admiral Picard on Star Trek Discovery? Gray the Sith? I knew it was coming. I just didn't know where. Mm. I just knew, I, I knew there had to, there, you know, these little Easter eggs would pop up. It's just, you know, kind of a surprise every time one of them does. But it was a nice little callback. It wasn't in your face. They didn't slap you with it. They just kind of sit it there, let you look at it and walk away. Mm. Oh. <laughs> so, so that sounds like you have thoughts. <laughs> I... Like, it, it just felt forced a little. Because in my mind, so again, we go back to this tech that we're seeing, and you're telling me that that was the best we could come up with? And I mean, they did make a point to say, you know, nobody was ever really successful with it, so they stopped trying. But like, okay, if that's the case, where did this one come from? Well, they didn't perfect it, so they stopped trying. And I can I can kind of see that in a way, as we've seen in Discovery since they've been in the future. It seemed like they moved to perfect the hollow technology over perfecting synths. And maybe because of what happened during the Picard era, uh, the problem with synths, you know, maybe it's just too many issues around. And who knows what's going to happen in the next season of Picard with the synth colony on the planet, you know? Maybe there's something that happened that pushed the tech away from being developed further. Hmm. It just seemed too easy, you know? It'd have been different. Like, I would have appreciated it more if, you know, I mean, we still drop the Picard reference there, but then he says, you know, here's an idea. They did this for Picard back in the day, and I think we can get this done, and I'm going to work on it. Mm, mm. But the fact that it was like you name drop this and you say it was such a hard problem to solve, yet here it is perfect and ready to go. All you have to do is remove the mole. <laughs> I got an issue with that. Like it was just too, 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 too much placed. Uh, so I can, I can, oh, that's hard. I can agree, but I also want to disagree with you. And the only reason I disagree with you is this. We still talk about Einstein, obviously, but we also talk about Euclid and we talk about Aristotle and we talk about uh, Galileo and different people that are a thousand years or 400 or whatever years behind where we are now. If you did something very, very, very monumental, then I are we involved in something monumental. I can see that being possible. No offense to Tom Paris, but I think it it makes much more sense to have a Sith and a Picard reference than it did a Tom Paris plate. Oh, yeah. 100% I agree with that. 100% I agree with that. I just, I'm, I'm just having a hard time. And maybe if they hadn't thrown in the part about it never really being successful because no one could ever reproduce it, really. Like... That could have been done without like, you know, I don't. Very good like, point. Like they tried to make an excuse for why this hadn't been used yet. But that excuse doesn't square the fact that it's there and perfectly usable all of a sudden. Well, well it, it could be not that the technology to build the synth body didn't work. It could be that the transference of the consciousness was hard to perfect. That could be the part that kind of hindered them. Yeah, you're right. And Culver did say. You know, since he's already transferred once, it probably will work again. He did say that was the original problem was the transference. Yeah. And I also felt like Adira almost did a Picard impression where she's like, we could live forever. She kind of, I thought she was trying to pull off a Picard impression there almost. Mm, I didn't catch that. <laughs> but I also feel like the whole conversation was almost a pseudo 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 was almost a pseudo conversation about gender identity and and what you want to be kind of subtle tones of that a little bit. I felt in that conversation as well. So Saru is some of the Burma's quarters and we get this again, this technology that's just hit me in the face. I'm loving it, but let's just talk about a few of them. We get this this full hollow installed in Burnham's quarters, which I thought was pretty freaking cool. We get Zora officially being named uh. which is amazing and 
also we get this just idea that kind of blew my mind of having a remote hologram on book's ship, which I I just would have never thought of that. And then this programmable matter tether as well. It's just like they just hit me with so much tech real quick. And I, <laughs> I loved all of it. <laughs> well, you know, the the hologram thing, I, I could really go get on board with because we've already seen it in Picard. Have we? Yeah, you know, remember he had his uh, ready room on the on the ship. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like the hollow in the quarters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's I mean, the basis for that is already there. So they just copied that. I I do like this programmable matter, but <laughs> <laughs> it's cost like I've, I I I it's obviously matter, and if the dots and the probes are too light and small to go through it. I'm assuming the matter would also be the same case. You would think anyway. Yeah. Right. Like I, I just don't see how a tether, even if it was an actual tether, how it would survive in there. Yeah. And also I'm kind of thinking like, why even take the risk of putting book on the ship? If we have this tether and we can do this remote hollow projection onto the ship, I, why couldn't right. both of them be sitting in on the ship comfortably and safe and, I don't know. <laughs> oh boy, you're killing Maybe my writing right now. Maybe the queen didn't want two holograms on on, and she didn't want to leave book's ship. Maybe that was it. Maybe I've got two things. Book is an angry man looking for answers. He's not going to sit back and let a hologram do what he can do. So he was going to be on that ship. Would come hell or high water. And two, they are painting themselves into a corner with all this new technology. It's very pretty. I love it all but they're starting to make it more of a focal point than the background. They're making it a character and not the setting. Mm. Well said. Well said. Yeah. I, I just feel like they're going to paint themselves into a corner where normal scenarios aren't going to be feasible because people are always going to say, why don't you just use this cool tech you have? You know, sitting around. <laughs> but the sad part of that is if, if we go by that logic, then doesn't that lead us to the inevitable of asking, didn't they paint themselves into a corner when they decided to go 900 years in the future? I don't think so. I just think some of the concepts are some of the concepts are going to take us getting used to. But if the writers are clever enough to write around it and it makes sense, I'm fine with it. But this is going to make the job that much harder for the writers, in my opinion. And that that this like you guys are saying, and you, I expected advanced technology, but yet, like some of this, the programmable matter, like again, as everyone has said, it's cool. We like it. But as you're kind of, I think you're driving home, Clarence, is programmable matter specifically, like that sounds to me like there is no limit to what it can and can't do. Like in that case, we could have used programmable matter to make a ship that'll go through it instead of using bookship. Yes, almost sound like a get out of jail free card, right? And it, because it, it's so it's so holy, like I don't not <laughs> not holy like God like 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 it's a lot of it's a lot of it's too much space and opportunity for this programmable matter. Like it's it's just like you said, you're going to be able to everything they do. You're going to say, well, why didn't they use programmable matter? It would have worked. Yes, it's funny. I was watching. I was back home over the holiday, and I was watching the first Transformers movie with Wahlberg in it. And guess what they had in that movie? Programmable matter. <laughs> they did. I was like, "What? Really? Did we just steal this idea from this?" <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, I got a kick out of that. I was really like, "What?" So let's talk about Stamets and Book. I I kind of feel like. Stamets didn't bring over a lot of that animosity he had at the end of last season. And Cal, maybe you can enlighten us because you recently went back and watched the the finale. But to me, it doesn't seem like he's come over with a lot of that baggage. And, you know, he even made the joke, you know, to, to Captain Byrne, he might as well blow me out of airlock. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Wink. That was yeah. good. So, I mean, it, does it feel ingenuine that it doesn't seem like he didn't come over with that baggage? Yet, when we get in this conversation with Book aboard Book's ship, it seems like there seems to be a whole lot that has happened 
but we didn't really see it on screen. Or, or maybe you can tell us if it seemed like it transferred successfully from the finale over to this moment. Mm. So I think it transferred successfully, and here's why. I think what we saw at the finale was raw emotion or a raw wound and him expressing being pissed off, ticked off, whatever you want to call it, because it had just happened when we were watching it. And he was rightfully so enraged. And 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 like I said, rightfully so. On the flip of that, every single one of us, whether we admit it or not, ha- would be on some level afraid of being replaced in whatever fashion. And you've got this character of book that really has nothing in common with Stamets other than they both can do the spore drive. And the one thing that they have in common is a contentious subject that kind of has a way of separating them because of that fear of replacement. I thought that they did those scenes excellently or the way they presented them because it gets us past that awkward stage and then they finally take what was a point of contention and turn it into something that I'm not saying these two bonded in any shape, form or fashion, but I am saying that they formed maybe a mutual respect mm. for each other. Yeah. Perhaps. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. Yeah, this this whole spore drive, spore jump envy is is very is very kind of interesting to me. And the added dynamic to where I felt like at the end of last season, we were to this point where, hey, you know what? Book can do the jumps. Let's develop this spore drive technology. We have a whole planet of Quajanese people. You know, maybe this is the new mode of travel for the Federation. And I'm wondering, was getting rid of the Quajan people part of the writer's attempt to keep discoveries distinctly unique Hmm. because that basically kills the jump technology unless they find some other uh, genetic coast to to fill in that position Mm. good point could it be instead and and ultimately it's the writers so you've ultimately answered the question correctly but it could it be some unknown force that is controlling this flux-like destructive force that is destroying things, could it be whatever they are that are not necessarily wanting to control the spore drive, but don't want that type of technology again? Hmm. Think of it like this. Power loves a vacuum. And in a vacuum of no dilithium and no warp drive, something replaced that which, and something was more powerful. When you have spore drive technology again, that will make whatever that is and that group of people that control whatever that is not be as worth or as valuable anymore. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get that. I definitely get that as far as the power control and all that stuff. I just have no idea what they're going with it. Um <laughs> 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 Jeremy, I'm going to throw this out to you, man. Special effects in this episode. We get this cool sub subspace gravitational wave that hits Discovery and we're all floaty floaty for a few minutes and stuff. Uh, just your thoughts on maybe that effect and just the different other effects shots we got in this episode. It feels like they're blowing the budget each episode. <laughs> but do you have any thoughts on the effects? I mean, if they're blowing the budget, they're doing a great job of it because the effects have been I've loved it. I thought that was probably one of the coolest visual scenes of the whole episode. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the visual effects were just amazing. That whole floaty bit, I'm just like, how are they actually pulling this off? (laughs) (laughs) Did they spit everybody on wires? I mean, it's just amazing to see that. Yeah. Again, you go back. I, I think Trek has done, over the years, have always done pretty good with visual effects. Even when the technology really didn't exist to do it, they pulled it off nicely. Like I, I just on a specific example, you know, with like a no gravity floating situation, like DS9, there was this uh, scientist that was from another planet that had really low gravity. So she was ha- she had to be in a wheelchair in normal gravity. So yeah. Dr. Bashir like created some quarters that she could have a zero grav environment. 
And like he went to be with her because he liked her, obviously, he liked everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of floated around together. And it was actually done really well. Mm. And you look at other situations and other shows, a lot of times you could kind of tell it was not like natural. You could tell it was assisted. Yeah. And, you know, when I saw these two instances in Discovery, I immediately thought back to that and said, you know what? They did a pretty good job on DS9 of making that seem true. <laughs> so, yeah, like I, maybe the budget is not blown. I mean, maybe it's just, I don't know. They've always done a great job. And that, this is just another example. Yeah, there's a great YouTube video explaining their use of the AR wall that they use on, you know, the kind of Mandalorian style volume wall that they use for special effects. I'll try to link that in the show notes, but you should go watch it because it's pretty cool of how they can build a set. And I think where it benefits the most is like the lighting of yeah. different scenes. It, it's lit very naturally. And uh, I think I, I know that they used it on the. The, the part where the they did the speech to the cadets, they used it on that scene. But I feel like the next episode, they're going to be using it a lot because uh, we're going to get a lot of Navarre on the next episode. But, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm just loving seeing all this this special effects goodness <laughs> movie style. Like you said, John, movie style. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, I know I gripe about the programmable matter, but that's actually really done really well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that could have very well been. A terrible, small, but terrible special effect. And they did it quite well. Like when they said they were going to use programmable matter for a tether, I was like, "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) like, what? I'm like, this is not going to end well. Like, I I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe like it was just going to appear like transport in. But I mean, it kind of worked. I don't know how they made it work, but it worked and it was good. Can I also add? That in Picard, they had seatbelts. Did they really? After the first, yeah. Yeah, they actually made a comment about it, like in the, in, like on the later, later episodes. But after the first one, wouldn't you think that, you know, those who have chairs on the bridge, put your seatbelts on in case this happens again? <laughs> Would have been a good idea. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> right. Click it a ticket. Okay, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> really? I don't um, see the, I don't see the need for seatbelts, though. It's, I mean, that's kind of we've had inertial dampeners since like TNG and before. Well, I mean, since TOS, like it really did. There's no need for a seatbelt. I mean, how how often will you end up with no gravity? John, you know, every once in a while you will hear somebody say inertial dampers are offline. <laughs> that should be the cue to buckle up. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Well, that'd be a good situation for somebody to obviously jump over something on the bridge. <laughs> yeah, as many scenes we've seen of explosions and them like flying across the. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh boy! So, have you guys ever noticed that science station off to the corner of the bridge of Discovery? I've never noticed that thing. I thought that was like in a totally different part of the ship. Huh? So so Tilly and Adira go to a science station room off the side of the bridge. And I've never noticed that. I didn't notice that. I thought they went to engineering. No, they were like right off of the bridge because Burnham turns around and says, you guys got anything yet? You know, she's like, I don't know. I think that room used to be um, uh, Lorca's ready room. It uh, seems like in the same spot, sort of. I'm not quite sure. Or the little menagerie room or whatever he had. Yeah. Oh, until he checked the Dara. I was like, wow. <laughs> like, what? Double check your work. <laughs> and didn't 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 the Dara seem a little annoying too? Like she seemed a little more they seemed she I am not gonna get into all I get confused. But anyway, you know what I mean. Like she, like the confidence level was way down for some reason. Well, that's what I said last episode. She just seems like because they have her in a role of an ensign, she's reverted to acting like an ensign. Right. I, I don't feel like she acted like that in the previous season. Well, it was blatantly obvious this episode. I disagree. Other than I don't really have any comment other than I disagree, it, but I just disagree. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Now, for me, I didn't find her annoying. You know, I kind of got used to that from the last episode. I just found Gray immensely annoying for some reason. Be and 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 it really has nothing to do with her character specifically. It's just like whenever she shows up, it's just like 
in a totally different tone than everybody else because he's talking in this very mellow voice and it's to me it's just like i don't know i don't know what it maybe it's going to work better when she's an actual thing that everybody can see or when they are actual being that everybody can see but i just cow you know i don't like being in nobody's head (laughs) no and and i usually don't mind being in somebody's head I, I actually kind of like that, but I agree with you, Clarence. There, there's something I, I, I don't know that that is annoying about that. And maybe it's the you're supposed to be a voice inside a head. Maybe this is the problem. We've always seen as this symbiotic relationship as being a voice inside the head. That's what you're supposed to be. But yet, and I'm not saying that you sh- that no one should not be what someone says they should be. That is so not what I'm meaning. But what I am saying is it's 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 like this character is very needy, and it's all about what I want, what I need, etc. Sometimes, or at least that's how it's coming across. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally get it. I, I just can't wait till she has a or till they have a body. And then I then I just think I would be be able to gravitate to the character a bit more because honestly they went with this whole synth thing. I thought this was gonna make her a hollow character, which made more sense yeah. to me. Yeah. But I, I have to I have to disagree with you, Kyle. It's I didn't see them as overly needy. I'd seen it's too supportive. Mm. Mm. Like it was just constant a constant Oh, you can do it. You're great. You're, we're going to be okay. All of this is like, it was just too, for the moment, like for the moment that we're in in this episode, it was, I know it's going to sound terrible, but it was too much positivity. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> okay. If you take my thing I just said and you marry that to what you just said, makes this a very cynical and sinister character because it makes the, now makes me think of this character as I want a body, so I'm going to, yeah. you know, give you every bit of positivity I possibly can. So I can get what I want. Right. Now you made me dislike this character. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> uh, get me out of your head. And you know what happens when Kyle d- dislikes a character. So just warning you. Well, you dislike Tilly at first. So. I, true. That is true. So what I didn't dislike was seeing a lot more of the bridge crew take charge as Stamets and Book were in the anomaly, getting readings, battling out their demons with each other. Back on the bridge, we have the bridge crew working to get them out of the anomaly. And we see a lot more of, I think that's Lieutenant Nielsen, the blonde-haired officer. But also, Bryce steps in? Newtonian mechanics? What? (laughs) Yeah, that was was pretty good. That was pretty good. It... It felt out of place to me, though. It just like he he just came over out of nowhere, and, and it was kind of a layup, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> like I don't I don't know that. I mean, it made it seem like it was just this epiphany that no one else would have thought about, but like it really wasn't that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I won't take anything from him. He made a good point, but I mean, just because he surfed, that reminded him of this. Oh, that's what that what the connection was. Yeah, like he did some kind of surfing on some planet or whatever. It would make, uh, what made him think about it, and he's like, "Why don't we just ride the wave? Ride that wave, book. Ride that <laughs> wave." <laughs> yeah, that was weird. And then they tied the the computational analysis into the programmable matter, which Burnham could feel at her captain's chair, and she had to tell Book when to get on the wave. What? Yeah, that made no sense to me. I didn't understand that. There's just a lot going on. I'm like, okay, let's let's not get too complicated with this tech. We just let's just keep it simple. I mean, we could have easily, you know, transferred control over to Burnham for her to be able to press the button on on bookship or something, you know. Or or and this kind of goes back to what you're hinting hitting on. You know, if I'm thinking about if this would have been the problem in TNG of Voyager era. They simply would have said, okay, uh, Tilly and Adira worked out the calculations. Here's the calculations. You have to hit this wave exactly at this point, exactly at that time. 
Yeah. And like sent him those numbers and then he had to do it. Yeah. But we wouldn't have that emotional connection. Right. With personal with a per, what, personal communications or I forgot what they called it in the episode. Yeah. Private channel bubble. <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? Uh, okay. Yeah. Tech yeah. is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to say about this episode? Anyone have any closing thoughts as we wrap this up and get ratings? Uh, I just like the fact that we got to see the new Ferengi. Yes, we did. We did, which was interesting. A redesign. A gruesome gremlin-like redesign. I don't know if I'm okay with that. (laughs) Like, I always looked at the Ferengi as like the fun... Like, they just, you know... It's weird. <laughs> I'm okay with it, but yeah, it looks pretty, pretty, pretty creepy. And we still haven't, we still don't know what the Klingons look like. You know, like everybody else was there. What happened to the Klingon Empire? Maybe Listen, it's no more. I don't know. If the if the Ferengi look like that, I, <laughs> <laughs> the Klingon is gonna be a horror story, man. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah, they need to make like a, a Halloween short trick. With the- <laughs> My God. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my. Uh, and I guess just closing, like, I mean, when I was telling you earlier on the high level views, like they left us, which I really loved, you know, the conversation with Tilly and Saru at the end, where she basically just said everything they did was for nothing because this thing changed directions. Mm. Like that one, that one small thing just changed the whole trajectory of what we're doing. Yeah, unpredictable. And one more small note to note. It's curious. I want to know how long Saru is going to stay here because he's rubbing that emblem, the councilman emblem. Yeah, yes, he is. And he's pondering into space rubbing that. And I'm just thinking he's not going to be here long. Oh, don't say that. I'll crush my dreams. Sorry. I mean, it's cool to see the whole GQ arm sway walk. (laughs) <laughs> Again, but and even Burnham mentions that he had a he could have been the captain of some other ship. I can't remember the name of it. The Sojourner. It's the new ship that the uh, president was trying to get was interviewing Burnham for. Mm. Mm. So we have another case of a first officer turning down a captain position to <laughs> to remain first yeah. officer, which is interesting. Riker. <laughs> yep. Indeed. With that. Let's go ahead and get ratings for the episode. And let's start with you, Jeremy. What's your rating for the episode, man? So I'm going to go with a 4.5. Only because I didn't understand some of what they were doing. Like the program of matter when Michael was trying to guide him through. Like that just seemed unnecessary. But I mean, it was this is one of my favorite Trek shows. So I want to give it a 4.5. Awesome sauce. 4.5 from Jeremy. What about you, Cal? You know what? I'm comfortable giving it a 4.5 as well. I enjoyed it, and I have no complaints. Awesome sauce. What about you, John? I came into this with a solid 4.8, but as we talked about it, there were some more issues that came about, and that kind of pushed me to the 4.4? Interesting. Yeah, for me, I feel like... I feel like I had so much, I'm not even going to say fun because it was dealing with some pretty heavy stuff, but I'm going to bump mine up a bit because I just, you know, once you guys really drilled in on the acting of David Ajala in this episode, I just really feel like we, I have to <laughs> go up just a little bit because uh, his acting was phenomenal and seeing Saru back, I thought was excellent. And we had a very tech complicated show which does give me some weariness but still i liked how it was presented i love the the sure ideas of of some of the tech although again i think it can be universe breaking at some point so sorry writers you're gonna have to do a great job with that so i'm gonna i'm gonna land on about a 4.6 i really enjoyed it no no complaints no complaints and with that we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode and if you have thoughts on this episode, please send that along to at Discussing Trek on any and all social medias or hit us up at fans at DiscussingTrek.com via email 
And you can also use those same two outlets to answer Trek Trivia. John, what do you have for us this week? Ah, so I got a small uh, history lesson for us and a question. Um, So I was going to make this a question, but I actually found a little more interesting question on the same subject. So I'm going to give you a history lesson. So you guys know uh, our beloved Jordy LaForge on TNG, uh, LeVar Burton. Uh, He was actually named and created an honor of a certain person by Gene Roddenberry. And this person, this was going to be my question, but it's not. The person was George LaForge, who was a quadriplegic fan, a huge fan of Star Trek that died in 1975. Mm. Gene Roddenberry was such he loved this guy so much. He just named the character after him. Now, that being said, casting call was placed for Geordie LaForge. And they asked for someone that someone should have perfect dictation and might even have a Jamaican accent, which that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Really? And instructed agencies not to submit any street types. So I don't know what that meant. (laughs) But anyway, there were Jordy was actually considered for the role, but there were three other notable people that was cast for this role that was interviewed for this role. And obviously they didn't get it. Uh, one was Reggie Jackson, a famous, uh, professional, uh, baseball player. The other was, believe it or not, Tim Russ, who later played two yeah, I knew that one. Yeah. And there's a third one that you guys will never guess. And I really kind of wish <laughs> it would have been weird to see, but it was another one. I know. Did somebody just, oh, wow. Okay. Go ahead, Cal. Nope. Uh, what, what do you want me to hold it? And no, let... Go ahead. Cause I'll come up with another one next week. All right. I will say that if I were to answer your question, that there might have been a trilogy that this person was in <laughs> of, you know, very sharp proportion, but walking in the day. Maybe Wesley Snipes. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> really? Wesley Snipes was considered for the role. Really? Uh, the other people, which I don't know these people, Yomay, was Kevin Peter Hall and Clarence Gilliard. Wesley Snipes? Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Man, we had to rename the Enterprise to Rutabaga. <laughs> he would have blew some. <laughs> oh my God. Are you, are you serious? Yes, sir. Oh, boy. I've heard it all. I've, I knew the Tim Russ one. That's the only one I knew. But, oh, my God. Whew. Well, I guess that'll end the podcast. <laughs> so, thank you, LeVar Burton. <laughs> thank you, God. Thank you, LeVar Burton. So, we basically go from New Jack City to Reading Rainbow. <laughs> like, how did you weigh this position? Uh, Reading Rainbow, New Jack City. Reading Ra- you know, I mean... There's a fine line between a, a pendulum and a wrecking ball. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I can't believe that was even a... Anyway, wow. Oh, boy. That it would have was... been fun, though. It would have been a good, like, parody. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wouldn't have known the difference in that other, in that other reality. Are you sure? He would have got replaced. <laughs> <laughs> the show would have been canceled. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. That's great. That That is my highlight for the week right there, dude. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. We're going to end right there. Thank you all for listening in. R- write, write John and tell him how awesome his question was, because that was just great. That was great. I needed that. <laughs> and be sure to join us next week as we continue our reviews of Star Trek Discovery Season 4. It's been fun. Thank you guys for joining. And until next time, guys. Live long and prosper. Thanks for listening to the Discussing Trek podcast. For more information, go to discussingtrek.com slash subscribe.
climb aboard for adventure. Your traveling companions are fellow fans of Doctor Who. That's right, it's the podcast Discussing Who, exploring the worlds of Doctor Who, past, present, and future. Find out more at discussingwho.com. You've been listening to the Discussing Network. Find out more at discussingnetwork.com.